dear friends, my name is John Bergen and you're listening to The Word is Resistance. Here we ask, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This is our 99th episode. Wow. I just want to pause for a second and honor the work that has gone into the last three years of this podcast, the labor that each contributor offers. We're going to be celebrating the 100th episode more next week with Nicola. I'm grateful just to be a part of it. The music you're hearing in this episode is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing it is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and Surge Action, Surge or Showing Up for Racial Justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast is for everyone but geared towards white people working to build our resistance muscles. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. We are building up a new world, indeed. This Sunday's lectionary texts begin with Isaiah 43. Quote, Do not remember the former things, or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they, may, that they may declare my praise. What a promise. What a vision. Can't you see it? I mean, even the ostriches do. Are you less perceptive than an ostrich? Psalm 126 continues this vision with a prayer, quote, When the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy and was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great for things for us and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. This podcast today isn't going to be something new. If you're a long time The Word is Resistance listener, or if you've been engaged in anti-racism work for a while, this may sound a bit more like preaching to the choir. But sometimes we need reminders of the old to help us form the new. 
this fifth Sunday in Lent, one week out from Palm Sunday, from the start of Jesus' week of direct action in Jerusalem, we are in the thick of it. Every day, we move closer to Jerusalem. We are shedding what is not needed. We are in the midst of our practices, whether they are giving up, taking on, switching up, pausing, just as Jesus and his community are in the midst of preparing for confrontation with Roman imperial powers in Jerusalem. In Lent, we are in the midst of practicing and embodying a new world. And so a week before Holy Week, we get in the gospel passage an anointing, a blessing for the work ahead, a preparation of God's body for God's sacred work. Here's John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the, at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the, of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the, about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Ooh, this passage evokes strong emotions for me. On, on one level, it's memory. My father is a Mennonite pastor as well. It's a genetic condition. And once, when he preached on this passage, he wanted to demonstrate a small part of this passage to our white middle-class congregation. So he pulled out $100, five crisp 20s, and he burned them one by one while he continued to preach. I cannot tell you what he said, but I vividly remember watching money burn. The object lesson wasn't subtle. This is just money. Don't let it own you. Today I can't help but hear Judas' voice in the story as the white voice of the nonprofit CEO. I'm glad you're so excited about throwing this party for our volunteers, but we really need to keep it within budget. I hear what you're saying about wanting to pay our interns, but we do pay them in the form of a valuable experience, and really we couldn't do the important work we do without them. Or, I need you to rewrite this statement on solidarity so it won't upset our funders. Bible scholar and white anti-racist community builder Clarence Jordan offered a piece of midrash about Judas' decision to betray Jesus. He imagined Judas as a seminary student from Judea, fervently religious and in love with the fire of the prophets. He was dedicated to justice, and in this imagined story he is invited to meet with the head of the denomination, Caiaphas, in Jerusalem. And so the executive minister, Caiaphas, sits down with him and says, and I'm quoting with ellipses here, You're a good boy, Judas. You know, I remember how bright you were. You used to be my altar boy. I remember the way you read the scriptures. You had such promise. I don't know what happened to you, but here you've kind of strayed. Wouldn't you like to come back in? You know, I happen to have a report on the synagogue over at Capernaum. There without a rabbi over there. I think we could set you up with a real good position if you'd go on and get a little bit more schooling and quit this business. This this guy you've been running around with, this little Galilean peasant, I've been keeping a file on him, Judas. They're going to come down here and arrest him. There isn't any question about it. 
and they're going to arrest all those other guys who are with him. And now I'd hate to see a good boy like you ruined. Jordan goes so far as to say that the cup that Jesus wants to pass from him as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane is not a cup of crucifixion, but one of betrayal. Jesus is heartbroken because Judas, this dear friend and organizing comrade, this promising young leader in the struggle, sells out the movement to further his career. Judas is afraid of losing control. He's watched Mary bathe his teacher's feet in 300 denarii worth of perfume, which amounts to almost a year's wages at minimum wage, ostentatious expense that will certainly raise the eyebrows of his board of directors. Maybe he can read the writing on the wall that the movement doesn't have the numbers needed to overthrow the Romans in Jerusalem, that the loss is imminent and it's going to be devastating. Who knows? If I'm honest, I can have the same reaction that Judas has in this moment. I was raised to be anxious about money, to see everything through the lens of saving and scarcity. My father's often the same way. Burning $100 in church was a moment of spiritual release for him. But Judas and I, we are trapped in an old way. We often can only see things as they are. We cannot imagine a new creation. We are owned by our scarcity, unable to see our way out of the trap. Or the only way we can see is to work harder, to rise in the ranks, to leave behind our connections and our movements for some imagined security. Through this door is only death. Only isolation, emptiness, desperation, exhaustion. Through this door is white supremacy with its harshness and falsities. But as we know, there is another door. There is another world, a new creation. And the holy irony of this new creation is that it is so old. Far older than a Protestant work ethic or capitalism, far more ancient than white supremacy, the writer of Isaiah gives us God's credentials by telling the story of the Exodus. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. And the psalmist reminds us, the Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. Much of Jesus' ministry is a ministry of restoration, of creating something new that is at once so old. And there's, there's immense danger in a promise of an old-slash-new creation. White nationalism's promise, of course, is the restoration of something imagined to be old, a white nation for white people. Islamophobic Brexiteers promised that the British lion would roar again, and, and there isn't a land on this planet that isn't stained with the blood spilled by that lion. The promise of white nationalism is always a lie. There is no mythic white homeland, and there never has been. At the height of the British Empire, the British invented whole new ways of exploiting and abusing white British workers. The right's resurrection is always actually some new zombie monster dead on the inside while consuming the living. So what then is our new creation? What new world might we imagine outside the confines of the Protestant work ethic that snared Judas and so often snares our movements? As usual, Jesus, like Marx, gives us signposts along the way, not the full vision of the end destination. He invites us 
to lavishly celebrate each other, to anoint each other and dance into the revolution, to wash our feet in preparation for a journey that roots us deeply in the earth, deeply in a liberation that is place-based but beyond any nation. We are invited to let loose our sense of control, our anxiety over scarcity. Like I said at the beginning, there's nothing new in today's podcast, nothing new in this message. Maybe, like me, you can get all riled up laying out this powerful vision of a community of creation, a new kingdom. Maybe, like me, you think you know everything there is to know about how whiteness and capitalism generate scarcity culture. Maybe, like me, you've preached this message to yourself and your comrades for years. Maybe, like me, you can lay it all out, all your insecurity and pain when you first see a new therapist. There, I've articulated it. Maybe, like me, you're still caught in it. You're still holding on too tight. Still disconnected, still traumatized by whiteness or middle-classness or ableism or heteropatriarchy. Still hurting. There is no book we can read, no conference we can attend, no direct action we can plan that will heal us of this hurt. No amount of organizing can set us free if we will not allow the spirit to come in and be free with us. I have written and rewritten this podcast episode trying to lay out the program for getting from here to the freedom Jesus invites us into in this scandalous story of over-celebration. There are words for it, but I have only now this invitation to bless and be blessed, to give and to receive, to hold and be held, to become more deeply bound up in love and liberation. Today's call to action is to let go of control, to be a little less like the seminary student Judas in this story. Take a moment right now to pause and reflect on where you're holding on a little too tight. I'll wait. And while we wait, consider, in line with several of our contributors in this season, whether there are places where Jesus' call might ask you to shift your resources. Is there someone in your community who you have not yet talked to about reparations with? What might that first conversation look like for you? Thanks for joining me today. You may not know this, but we're not the only ones podcasting about dismantling white supremacy and the intersections of our activism, faith, and community building. We encourage you to check out Podcast for a Just World, specifically their Lenten series, Sacred Conversations to End Racism. The podcast is produced by our friend Tracy Howell Whispelway, and the Lenten series is co-hosted by Reverend Dr. Velda Love, Minister for Racial Justice for the United Church of Christ. Podcast for a Just World is available on iTunes and SoundCloud slash For a Just World. Finally, you can help us in celebrating our 100th episode. I and all of us would really appreciate it if you went to bit.ly slash TWIR100 survey to fill out our listener survey. Tell us more about why you listen.
And as always, let us know how it's going by commenting on our Facebook page or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you're using. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search for The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. Thanks to our sound editor, Maxwell Pearl, for putting this all together. Seriously, thank you, Max. And blessings to all of you as you continue in the work of being transformed, of transforming the movement and transforming the world. Go in peace. Yeah.